if I can read the scripture, I have such a beautiful anthem. Thank you. It is coming from Matthew 26, verse 17 through 30, on page 832 of your pew Bibles. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed him, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were all very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said it, gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of God. I invite you to keep your Bibles open uh, this morning as we look at this passage together in Matthew uh, chapter 26. And let's, uh, let's pray together for God to meet us as we look at his word uh, that we would hear from him this morning. So please pray with me. Gracious Father, uh, we give you great praise for the chance of gathering this morning for the chance to sing the truth of your gospel, uh, for the chance to taste, as it were, the truth of your gospel this morning in the Lord's table. Lord, we pray that as we look at your word, uh, that your spirit would meet us, every single one of us, right where we're at. Lord, you know uh, the burdens that each heart carries. You know the distractions, uh, the temptations, the anger, the frustration, the sense of failure, the whole range of human emotion, Lord, reflected even in this room. Lord, you know each heart. For you made us and you gave your son to redeem us. So meet us this morning by your spirit. Give us eyes to see you. Give us ears to hear you. And change our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, birthdays are uh, a big deal in the Levering family, uh, and next month is a big month for birthdays. 
we have three to celebrate. Joshua turns 10, which is impossible to believe. Uh, Chloe turns two. And Carissa turns... I know better than to do that. Uh, Personally, uh, I would forget my own birthday if my wife didn't remind me of it. I'm never really good at paying attention to that. Carissa is kind of a birthday ninja. She just keeps track of things, and she always, you know, puts a lot of effort into making sure it's a special event. You know, when Joshua and Mariah were little, we had this inflatable lion, was it, or a bear or something like that, a lion, and she would get this thing out, and it held this like, little banner that said, happy birthday, and it would be the first thing to greet the kids in the morning on their birthday, which could be terrifying, but they loved it. Um, you know, and she, she really actually starts planning parties in her head months in advance, um, which I just take a lot longer to catch up with those conversations. But she loves birthdays, and she always goes out of her way to make them special for our family. And when, when the day actually comes, it's filled with balloons and cake and cards and, and candles and singing and gifts, all of the things that make that day special. But do we... Do you ever stop and think about why we do all of those things that we do on somebody's birthday? I mean, is it just kind of an evil plot by the greeting card manufacturers and and Toys R Us to kind of, you know, you have to do all of this stuff? Uh, What's the point of the food and the gifts and the singing? Why do we set fire to a cake? You know, what, what is, this, this person's going to be a year older regardless of whether we celebrate it or not. So why do we do all of this? Well, that's just it. We are celebrating that person. And the actions and traditions, the songs we sing, the food that we eat, that all has a meaning. It communicates a message to the person It says something, not just with our words, but in the doing, in the eating, in the singing. We're saying something to our children. We love you. We're thankful for the day that you were born. We're so thankful for how you've grown, and we wish you many, many more years. Parties and meals can have a message. Actions, things that we do, can communicate something. One author notes that all human societies, in fact, have developed ways of saying things by doing things or meaning things by doing things. So a military salute, no words involved, but you're saying something, or a pat on the head or a handshake that clenches the business deal. All of these are symbolic actions that say things that mean what they mean within a particular world. And some of the most meaningful things are the special meals that people share together. Such was the kind of meal that Jesus was preparing to eat with his disciples in Matthew 26. So the Gospel of Matthew has been telling us the true story of how God is establishing his kingdom on earth through the life, death, and resurrection of his eternal son, Jesus. And We've been following so far for most of the book the story of Jesus' life. That's been the focus. We've seen his teaching. We've seen his miracles. We've seen the confrontation with the religious leaders who were opposed to him. And as the story is now nearing its climax, 
we find the events unfolding in parallel to one of the most significant feasts for ancient Israel, the Feast of Passover. Now, we talked briefly about the significance of the first Passover, if you were with us last Sunday, how when God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt uh, with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, as it says over and over in Exodus, uh, he did so by pouring out his judgment on Egypt, his holy anger against their sin. He poured it out on, on Egypt specifically by striking the firstborn son throughout the land, even Pharaoh's firstborn son. But the problem was that if God is calling sin to account, then Israel has to get in line as well, because they too were sinners against God. They too had rebelled in different ways against God. And so they needed a covering if they were going to be protected from the judgment being poured out. They needed a substitute who would die in their place, in place of the firstborn and in place of of the nation itself, who was God's firstborn son. They needed a substitute to take the punishment that they deserved in their place. And so God gave them the Passover lamb, uh, a lamb without blemish, which each family would select. And then later on the 14th, day of the month, they would slaughter their lambs at midnight, and they would take some of the blood of that lamb, and they would paint it on the outside of the house, on the doorposts, and on the, on the cross piece, the lintel above, so that when the Lord's destroyer comes through the land that night to strike down the firstborn, he would see the blood, he would recognize that, that judgment's already been poured out on this house, and he would pass over it which is why we call it Passover. The sacrifice of the lamb was what covered them. The lamb died in place of the family. But that sacrifice was also a feast to celebrate. So it wasn't just a sacrifice, it was a party and a meal. And so along with instructions on how to slaughter the lamb, God gave them instructions on how to eat it together in your homes and so on. Uh, with bitter herbs and so on and so forth, different instructions for how to to celebrate this meal, this party. It had to be eaten quickly because they were getting ready to leave Egypt. So there's no time for the, for the bread to rise. It had to be unleavened bread. And you eat it with your shoes on and your staff in your hand because you're, you're getting ready to walk out the door. But it was a feast nonetheless. Not And, and, and what's interesting is that It's not just a feast that they were to celebrate that night, that first Passover night. But God gave them an instruction that they were to observe that feast every year from this point on. Not because they needed to be saved from Egypt again and again and again, but as a reminder of who God is and what he did in rescuing his special people and bringing them to himself as a way of passing that memory on to later generations. And so you think of Exodus chapter 12, verses 24 to 27, where God says, you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. This Passover statute, this rite. And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, 
It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. So this Passover meal, this is the meal that Jesus is getting ready to eat with his disciples. This is the one they're asking him, where do you want us to go and prepare it? A meal that God wanted his people to celebrate again and again and again. Not because they were hungry and this is a way to get food. But because the meal itself communicated a message. It said something in the eating of it, in the drinking of it, and so on. It pointed them back to that glorious day when God rescued his people. And it pointed them forward to the day when God would free them from oppression again. This time from Rome. In Jesus' day. And so each element in that meal had a significance. It wasn't just to get full. It had a message to it. The bitter herbs reminded them of the sorrow of Israel's slavery. The unleavened bread reminded them of the haste in which they had to leave Egypt. Uh, though there's nothing said about this in the, in the first Passover, at some point along the tradition, several cups were added to that meal and that celebration, each of which having different significance, things, truths worth rejoicing in and celebrating, things like sanctification and redemption and blessing. And to share this meal together as the people of God was to say something through both words and actions about who God is and who his people were in relationship to him, that they were a redeemed people, a people rescued a people beloved, a people who walk in hope. And so Jesus instructs his followers to prepare the Passover meal in Matthew 26. Tells us that it was the first day of unleavened bread. That's the day when the sacrificial lamb would be slain. And the details about who who actually hosted them and how they got connected are pretty vague in the story, and even in the different gospel accounts, we see uh, different kinds of details. We don't know who the person was. We're not sure if Jesus arranged it beforehand or if he just kind of supernaturally let the person know. Um, it certainly makes sense, though, the the hush-hush nature of Jesus sharing this meal with his disciples. It was kept pretty secret. We already know the religious leaders are looking for a way to trap him and kill him, and so that that they would keep this secret makes a lot of sense. And so verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the 12. Jesus did with his followers that night what every Jewish family had done together for centuries. He ate the Passover with them. And yet, this Passover would be unique. This meal would mark a transition in God's great work of salvation from the old covenant under the law to the new covenant in Christ's blood. This would be a transition from promise to fulfillment, from shadow to reality. And that transition had been promised a long time ago. Jeremiah 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So, so something's happening as they celebrate this meal. There's a transition happening from the old covenant to the new. God is doing something new in the story of Israel, which is to say he's doing something new in the story of the whole world. And this Passover marks that transition. We'll talk a little bit more that, about that in a minute, but, but as we watch the evening unfold, we see that there's a price for making that transition. That it's costly for God to keep his word and bring about this new covenant. It's costly for God to pour out his love. The movement from shadow to reality requires the sacrifice of a Passover lamb, but not one like what had been slaughtered clear back in Egypt or one like what they had been slaughtering over the years to commemorate that. It required the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, as Revelation 13 puts it, or First Peter, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. There's a price to God keeping his promise in, in bringing a new covenant. And so this festive dinner takes a rather somber turn in verses 21 to 25. You can look at your Bibles there. As, we, as they were eating, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were sorrowful and began to say to one another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. He's going to die. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered him, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now, we already knew from verses 14 and 16 that Judas was going to be the one to betray him. Judas already knew. He'd already been paid. Whether the disciples figured out that's who he was talking about during the conversation is unclear. I mean, you would expect kind of a lynching or something like that in the scene, but they don't really react. And, and so perhaps that was a conversation between Judas and Jesus. We're not told. But what is clear is that from this point on, Jesus will become increasingly isolated and alone. He will be betrayed by one of his closest followers, Judas. And then in the verses shortly later, he tells the rest of his disciples how they're going to abandon him. And how Peter, one of the closest to him, will deny him. When he goes to the garden to pray, his, his three closest friends can't even stay awake to pray with him. When he's finally crucified, his own heavenly father turns his back on him as he pours out his wrath against all sin, past, present, future, on his beloved son. And Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a price to the fulfillment of God's promises. 
And it's a price Jesus would willingly pay. Willingly giving his own life. So knowing that that's coming, saying to his people that he's about to be betrayed, it doesn't stop Jesus from sharing the Passover meal with them, which is kind of interesting. It's kind of a party killer to talk about those kinds of things. And yet, he still shares it with them. And more than that, knowing what's about to happen moves Jesus to actually transform the Passover meal. To make it new. So, hearing your master, you know, the one you believe to be God's son and, and the king uh, of the universe, the one to whom all nations owe their glory and, and honor, hearing that he's about to be betrayed by his inner circle and then handed over for public execution, that already makes this the most memorable Passover in history. Just that conversation alone. But what Jesus does next and says next is even more shocking. So at the moment in the meal when the head of the household would would take the, the bread and bless it. It would have been something like this, a, a thin matzah, uh, unleavened bread. The host would bless it, probably with the, the uh, traditional uh, blessing, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Hamosi Lechem Min HaAretz. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, the one who brings forth bread from the earth. And he would break it, And then he would say to the people with him, this is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in the wilderness. At that point in the meal, Jesus takes the bread, but he says something shockingly different. He says, verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. He broke the script. And then at what was probably the third cup of of four cups during the dinner, not 100% sure, sometimes it's known as the cup of blessing, sometimes as the cup of redemption. It's hard to precisely reconstruct exactly what the Passover meal would have been like uh, at, at this stage in history. But at some point, he takes the cup and again, blesses it, gives thanks. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Borei Peri HaGafen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. And then he says something equally shocking in verse 27. He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So what is Jesus saying? What is he doing with this meal? He's transforming it. He's transforming the Passover meal. The meal that has for centuries been the defining mark of what it means that God is a God of salvation. 
that has defined God's salvation in light of the Exodus, Jesus is reinterpreting the elements of that meal to point to him. Because the fulfillment of the Exodus, the fulfillment of the Passover, that great saving act that those earlier meals and sacrifices were pointing forward to, that fulfillment has finally come. And it comes in Jesus' death on the cross. So the bread is no longer the bread of a sign of ancient Israel's affliction. It's a sign of Christ's affliction for us. The cup is now a sign of his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Every blood sacrifice in the Old Testament, think about this, every blood sacrifice in the Old Testament that ancient Israel ever performed was pointing forward to this once-for-all sacrifice for sin in Jesus' blood. Just as the Passover lamb died in place of Israel's firstborn, so Jesus dies in place of all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And through that, God establishes his new covenant with his people. Ratifying it, not with the blood of, of bulls and goats, like the first covenant was ratified in Exodus 24. Ratifying it with the blood of his own son, the precious blood of Christ. This is something new. The fulfillment has come. The reality is here. And so it's through faith in Jesus and only through faith in Jesus that we can be forgiven of our sins and have relationship with God. We who are deserving of his wrath can become children, can be adopted into his family. And eating this meal, this table, is a way of remembering and celebrating that. It's a way of sharing in and hoping in the truth of God's salvation through Jesus. It's a meal that magnifies the gospel. Jesus has taken the Passover meal out of the shadow and into the light of his fulfillment, and he has forever changed it to point to himself. So the meal that Jesus gives us is both smaller and bigger than the Passover. It's smaller in that it picks up and passes on only two elements of that uh, meal, the traditional meal, rather than the whole elaborate celebration. If you were with us for our Maundy Thursday celebration last spring, when we observed a traditional Passover Seder, you'll remember that meal was well over two hours long, uh, with four courses involved and all sorts of different stuff. It's a a fun and a meaningful thing. But in the New Testament itself and in the practice of the church through history, the Lord's Supper has focused simply on two elements, the bread and the cup. And so it's smaller than Passover. But it's also bigger than Passover in a couple of ways. Uh, First, it's bigger than Passover because it's celebrating the reality, not the shadow, the fulfillment, uh, not the promise. And second... Whereas the Passover was only celebrated once per year by Israel, Jesus wants the Lord's Supper to be a regular fixture in his church's worship. Uh, Now, 
obviously, depending on uh, which tradition you've grown up in, you'll know that, that different traditions will exercise or express that regularity in different ways. Some churches will, will celebrate the Lord's table weekly. Our tradition has been to celebrate it monthly. Um, though I wouldn't complain if we did it more often, to be honest. But you know, the, the precise frequency isn't the point, but that we do it regularly, Jesus wants us to share this meal often, to, to regularly, regularly share in this sacred worship practice. So why is that? Why would he want us to do this again and again and again? Why do we have birthday parties again and again and again? The meal is a message. The meal communicates significance. Eating this meal together as a church says something. Meals have a message. And so the question then, what are we saying and what are we doing when we share together in the Lord's table, in communion, in the Eucharist, as it's sometimes called? What are we saying and doing when we share together in that table? I think we can summarize it with four phrases. Remember, give thanks, fellowship, and hope. Remember, give thanks, fellowship, and hope. And so first we remember. Like the Passover meal which took Israel back to that night uh, when God poured out his judgment on Egypt but spared his, his children Israel. So this meal takes us back to the cross. The bread and the cup are signs pointing back to the crucifixion of Christ. Which is why Jesus says in Luke's version, uh, and, and the Apostle Paul picks up on this same wording in 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. So, so the Lord's table is first and foremost remembering what God has already done to deal with our sins through the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. The Lord's Supper is not a gift or a sacrifice that we offer to God. It's a celebration of the gift he's given to us. The gift of the gospel. That's why, for instance, the, the supper is, has been laid out on a dinner table this morning instead of an altar. That's the proper symbolism. The Lord's table is not a sacrifice we bring to God and place on an altar. It is a meal Jesus invites us to. And that, that, that symbolism is significant. Communion does not repeat the sacrifice of Christ, as, as certain traditions will teach. Uh, for instance, the Roman Catholic Church will teach that in what they call the Mass. That, that every time communion or the mass is offered, Jesus is in some way being re-offered up as a non-bloody sacrifice for the propitiation of sins. That's not what this meal is doing. That's not what Jesus teaches about it. Rather, in communion, we remember and cherish and share in the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. Now, we love our Catholic brothers and sisters, but we disagree with them on this point. What Christ accomplished on the cross was enough. 
It was enough for every sin ever committed in history. He doesn't have to be offered again and again for our atonement. In fact, he can't be if we read Scripture carefully. For instance, Hebrews 10, verses 12 to 14 says, very clearly, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Catch the the phrasing there. He offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. His atoning work was done. The priest doesn't sit down unless he's done. And Jesus sat down. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so communion's not a sacrifice, uh, which means that the, the bread and cup, again, these are some of the different questions the church has wrestled with over history, uh, and it's just important to kind of be clear on them and understand them a little bit. It, if communion's not a sacrifice, that means that the bread and the cup do not become or contain the body and blood of Jesus in any way. They are signs representing them. Um, They're signs pointing us back to the real body and blood that was shed for us some 2,000 years ago. Yes, Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, but he's speaking metaphorically. The the emphasis is not, uh, the emphasis is on the fulfillment of the Passover imagery. Instead of saying, this is the bread of affliction, this is my body. It's the fulfillment of Passover imagery. It's not an ontological description of of the nature of the elements. Uh, For instance, if I were to show you a a family picture, and I say to you, this is my family, and I'm right there in it, nobody would conclude from the use of the word is that that piece of paper somehow now contains or becomes my body. You're just not going to make that logical leap, especially when I'm the one standing here showing you that. It represents me. It's a picture. It's a sign pointing to the real me. And so when Jesus holds up the bread and the cup and he says, this is my body, this is my blood, and he's the one standing there holding it, he's speaking of representation. These are signs which point to the real thing, the once for all sacrifice. When you're you're driving down the road and you see a billboard for McDonald's, You don't go to the billboard to order your quarter pounder. You follow the sign to where it's pointing you, to the real thing. So it is with the elements of the table. They point us back to the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. So the bread and the cup are signs, which means communion is first and foremost about remembering what Jesus has already done, that sufficient sacrifice a single offering for all time that he gave on the cross. And so we remember, and in remembering, we give thanks. That's the second phrase. We give thanks. Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. He took on flesh so he could be our faithful representative. If he's not fully human, he can't stand in our place. Yet he remains fully God at the same time because if he's not God, he can't save from sins. He's both God and 
man, uniquely able to save us. He gave everything for us to rescue us and free us from our sins, and yet he offers that forgiveness to us free of charge. Free of charge. We don't earn it. We don't make it up to him through our good works or through this table. We don't come to this table because we're worthy and we've got it together and, and, and we're good enough and, and we've somehow made it up for all the times we messed up. We come to this table because we are sinners in desperate need of grace. And that's who Jesus invites, those who need him and know that they need him. And so when we come, we come saying thank you. We didn't earn any of this. We come giving our thank you to God for his grace, for his love, for rescuing us when we deserved the opposite. We deserved his wrath. When we partake of this meal, we are saying to God, thank you for the good news of Jesus. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. Which is why some traditions call this meal the Eucharist. That's a word that means thanksgiving. Eucharist means thanksgiving. And so we remember the work of Christ when we eat. We give thanks for the work of Christ when we eat. We also fellowship or participate in the work of Christ when we eat. And that's, that's the third point there, fellowship. In fact, communion as a word is just another English word for fellowship. Uh, communion means fellowship. And, and so communion is about fellowship both with God and with each other. There's both a, a horizontal and a vertical thing happening in this table When we partake of this meal, we are sharing in the death of Christ. We are benefiting from that death, from what he's accomplished for us. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And the word translated participation there is a word we usually translate fellowship or share in or commune. It's koinonia. It's talking about fellowship. Jesus meets us in the doing, in the eating and the drinking to strengthen us with his grace. And so, yes, he's present in this meal, not physically in the elements, but spiritually with us by the Spirit in the celebration. He's present to share with us the benefit of his sacrifice that we might enjoy his presence and be nourished by his grace. It's instead of hearing the gospel, it's feeding on the gospel. That's the imagery. And when we partake of the meal, we're not only fellowshipping with God, we're fellowshipping with each other, which is another reason we call it communion. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So, so the imagery is our fellowship with Jesus as we eat, but also our fellowship with one another in a single loaf, if you will. There's one bread, which speaks of one body. We have fellowship, partnership in the gospel. We belong to the same family, so we eat at the same table. 
There's no kitty table at the Lord's meal. That's why when we celebrate communion at Westgate, uh, we have what's often called an open table. And that means that if you are a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, if he is your king and your savior, and you belong to his family, you are invited to this table. You do not have to be a formal member of Westgate Church to share in the Lord's table together. There's one body, one bread. That's also why it's important when we're eating this meal, though, to what Paul calls discern the body, to recognize that this isn't just a snack to tide us over until lunchtime, or it's not just any other meal, it is the Lord's meal. It's the Lord's supper. And and so it's to be received with reverence and joy, not as just a way to fill my stomach, but as an act of worship and dependence on God and his gospel. Which is also why we're very careful to what we call fence the table when we uh, celebrate this meal. To make sure that only those who belong to the family of Christ participate in it. This is a family meal. And so if Jesus is not your savior and king, then you're not yet part of his family. And to eat of this table without recognizing the, the significance of it, discerning the body, as Paul calls it, to do that is, as Paul says, to eat and drink judgment on yourself. We don't want you to do that. And so what you need, if Jesus is not your king, what you need is not the sign. You need Jesus. You need to to see your sin for what it is and to recognize that there is a Savior who loves you and who gave everything for you to rescue you from that, to bring you to himself, and to trust in him. So in eating and drinking this meal, we, we remember, we give thanks, we fellowship, we participate in the sufferings of Christ, and then finally, we hope. We hope. Notice how Jesus says in Matthew twenty six twenty nine, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What is he talking about there? Well, he's saying that this meal, as important as it is, is itself actually pointing forward to another meal yet to come. Another feast that's going to be celebrated when God's kingdom is complete. When what Jesus has begun during his first advent, when when he returns and brings all of that to glorious completion, there will be another feast. He's talking about the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. John's vision, he says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's another meal coming. Just like a birthday party has a way of touching past, present, and future. You know, celebrating the day you were born, wishing you many more. So it is with communion. It takes us back to the cross while at the same time pointing us forward to the victory meal to come. And so we eat with hope. We eat with hope. Hope that God is not finished with this broken world. Hope that God is not finished with his broken church. Hope that God is not finished with me and my brokenness and my weakness and my rebellion. We eat with hope in the good news of Jesus. That is the power of the hope that we have. That Jesus has done for us all that is necessary to deal with our sin and to bring us to God, to redeem us from this fallen world for God's kingdom and glory. And that hope that God is not done with any of these things, that is a hope that is able to carry his people through the darkest hours. And every time we share this meal, we're reminded that we have that hope. It's kind of fitting that when you take of the Lord's table, it leaves you feeling hungry. There's another meal to come. So we eat to remember. We eat to give thanks. We eat to fellowship. And we eat to hope. As Paul summarizes so beautifully in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your generosity in inviting us, unworthy servants, to your table. Thank you that because Jesus is enough, there is room at your table for us. There is healing. There is peace with God. There is relationship and fellowship. There is hope. Lord, would you fill our hearts with that thanksgiving, with that hope as we sing and as we partake of this table this morning. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name.